Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, will you turn with me to uh, Revelation 3, where we just read a little bit ago. All right, so we've been going through these different uh, churches and the letters to these churches that Jesus wrote. And um, like your Bible may say something like this above each one. Uh, the Ephesus, it was known as the loveless church. If you remember right, that's what Jesus, uh, one of the things he critiqued about them is they had left their first love. And it was serious. Um, I mean, he said, I'll come, if you don't fix that, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your candlestick. I, I will remove your church. Uh, and then Smyrna, they didn't really have a, a critique uh, much of one, they were just being faithful, but they were being persecuted and uh, going through really difficult time. And so they're known as a persecuted church. Pergamos had some issues. Jesus had a few things against them. And so a lot of times people call them the compromising church, Thyatira. So we studied last week. If you don't deal with compromise, eventually you get to corruption. And there's kind of like this descent going on here until we get to Sardis this morning. Uh, and and it, it's called the dead church by a lot of theologians. Uh, some, some may say the sleeping church. And guys, you can go back. Thank you for putting that up there. Um, so, yeah, a lot of theologians refer to the church in the city of Sardis as the dead church. I, I put that in quotes because others call it the sleeping church. And while it's true here in these verses that Tommy just read for us earlier, um, it, it's true that Jesus himself tells them that they are, are dead um, he also tells them to be watchful, or, or modern versions might say something like, wake up. And so it's not a situation where they are, are dead, as in they're gone forever, past all hope, unable to respond too little, too late. No, these verses here, they have Jesus lovingly, urgently pleading with them to wake up, <laughs> to be watchful, to wake up to the serious and dangerous reality of their condition, and to make those changes that are necessary to be Jesus followers who are on mission and who are living their lives to glorify the Lord. Before we study these six verses, let's pray. God, we need your Holy Spirit here this morning to understand what this message is that you gave to the church in Sardis. And, and just as each other one we've studied so far, um, this is also a message for every one of us here this morning at Dublin First Baptist uh, 2024. Uh, at the end of, of these letters, you you plead, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says unto the church as. And so these are all messages for us. There's critiques in all these letters that probably pertain uh, to some of us some of the time. And God, there's an call to repentance at the end of these that definitely applies to all of us. You're, you're lovingly um, pleading with us to return in your grace and your mercy uh, to confess sin, to turn from it, and to turn in faith to you. And I pray that that's what would happen through our understanding of what the Holy Spirit says in these six verses this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the commendation, uh, and, and always that begins with Jesus identifying himself. And it says in verse 1, And unto the angel 
Now the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So again, taking language from way back in chapter 1 where Jesus identified himself, revealed himself to John. Jesus here, he reminds these Christians in Sardis, he reminds us here this morning who he is. Jesus is reminding us who he is. He has. He's in possession of. He is in control over the seven spirits of God. Now, what does that mean? We should understand it to mean the Holy Spirit. Not that there's seven Holy Spirits, but in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, uh, God describes the Holy Spirit that way there in that verse. Um, The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so when Christ ascended back up uh, into heaven, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell and to fill those who trust in Christ as Savior. We see that in the second chapter of Acts. That's what happens when we trust in Christ as Savior. But back in Isaiah 11:2, the Holy Spirit is described this way, as the Spirit of the Lord, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. There you got seven, seven-fold Spirit of the Lord. And so Jesus wants to emphasize to this church and to us here this morning that he has given us the Holy Spirit and how necessary the Holy Spirit is uh, for a healthy church to exist and to function. The church is literally born of the Holy Spirit. When we went through the book of Acts, we saw that. Uh, Now, the church is not just some like nebulous idea out there. It's composed of all of you. And all of you were born of the Holy Spirit when you trusted in Jesus as a Savior. So yes, the church is literally born of the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. If anything is going to get done for the glory of God, it's going to come from Christians who are indwelt with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. We cannot do what Jesus asked us to do as a church without him. And Jesus also says here in verse 1, I have the seven stars. So and if you remember from the last verse of chapter 1, And Jesus also described himself this way to the church at Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 2. These seven stars, they're the seven pastors, the seven leaders of these seven churches. They're described here as angels, literally in the Greek means messengers. So just like the Holy Spirit, Jesus has given the church them. He's given the church pastors, leaders, and Jesus is in control of them as well. The commendation to the church in Sardis here... um, That's Jesus' identification, but the the commendation is pretty brief. The compliment, Jesus says, I know your works. And and now he's told a few of the churches we've uh, studied so far that very same thing. And then the commendation comes about what they're doing right in those works. Um, Jesus compliments them, but not here. The next phrase is, uh, he says, "I, I know your works, I know your deeds, that thou hast a name that thou livest. So Jesus is saying, I know your deeds, Church of Sardis. I know you have a reputation of being a church that's alive. I mean, you are a church that's got it going on. But we got to pause there because what follows is not a commendation. Uh, In fact, to find anything positive here in in this dead or sleeping church, you got to drop down to verse 4 where Jesus says, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That's it. That, that's as close to a compliment or commendation that Jesus uh, gives to this church. The honest-to-goodness truth about anything positive that's going on in the church of Sardis. They have a few. <laughs> they have a few. Even, it's like Jesus says even. Even here in this dying-asleep church, a few who have them and who are and who will always be faithfully following Jesus. You know, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? 
Because they're a church with a name that thou livest. Right? A, a church that, at least to the perspective of, of man, to the viewpoint of the society around them, this is the church that's alive. That's a reputation. It's a place to be on Sunday morning. Yeah, it's a reputation, but the reality is very different, according to Jesus Christ. It's ironic and it's shocking, like wake up kind of shocking. You know, we had better remember what God um, told Samuel when he was going to anoint a new king in Israel. For the Lord sees not as man sees, right? For a man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. He knows the real deal. And Jesus does a, a thorough, healthy valuation here of the church of Sardis. And while things look good <laughs> on the outside, there was this chronic, there was this deadly heart condition going on, heart failure that had this church asleep and, and near death. Well, let's get more into the criticism. Uh, it begins at the second part of verse 1. That, that's Jesus' diagnosis here, uh, his prognosis of this church. Your reputation is uh, in this world, your reputation to this world. It might be that you're alive, but church of Sardis, you are dead. That's what Jesus says. You're about dead anyway. It's a serious prognosis. Jesus tells him near the end of, of verse 3, if things don't change, he's going to come on them as a thief. It's going to be a surprise coming. And like Christ's warning to the church at Ephesus back in chapter 2, this one is, is a coming of judgment on them. So let me share with you. I, I love studying God's word in preparation to preach. Uh, probably my favorite part of my job as pastor. But this one was tough. Uh, I shared that with Tommy earlier this week, I think. Um, unlike Jesus' previous messages to the churches that we studied so far where he critiques them, um, and it gives specifics. There's no real specifics or, or particulars here about the sins that they're struggling with. There, there's obviously problems. There's major uh, threatening the life of the church kind of problems, but, but they're just not clearly spelled out like they have been in previous messages. I mean, uh, there's no doctrine on Nicolaitans you're struggling with or, or immorality or idolatry that's uh, spelled out here, and I, I spent about twice the time I usually do in studying and, and about consulted about double the commentaries I usually do, and really none of them were too awful helpful in getting to specifics either. A couple of them hinted at what to do, and so that's what I did. We need to kind of reverse engineer this thing. <laughs> like, we know their problem, what Jesus says, you're dead, you're asleep, almost near death. Yeah, and there's no specifics given here in Christ's criticism as far as what the causes are, like what caused them to get this way in this dying condition. But let's just think, like what causes churches to die? What is it? What causes churches to die? And I think there's a couple of things, right? probably first and foremost. I believe the church in Sardis here left the word. They left the word of God. Um, that's a sure method <laughs> Satan will try to use to finish off a church quickly. Leaving God's word. And maybe it's this clear and drastic departure. We, we see things like this today um, where things are being preached or, or things are being received that are not true or, or where um, this, God's word being preached and received as the one objective, reliable, sufficient, life-given, life-transforming source of truth, that, that's not happening anymore. And, and that will threaten the life of a church more than anything else. Is that happening in churches today? Where, where this is abandoned? Definitely. And, and that church ain't long for this world. Um, and if they don't wake up and they don't change that reality, it's probably for the best, really, that that church dies. 
But a church leaving God's word, it, it's usually not like that sudden where that happens overnight. It's not that bold. It's not that brazen. See, uh, it can be uh, a pastor or teachers in the church incorrectly teaching God's word. It can be them failing to communicate what God has said in his word, maybe to appear more loving, to appear more tolerant, not wanting to offend anyone, being more concerned about uh, what the reputation of the church is to this world than they are about what the reputation of the church is to the Lord. In the way I see it, we've been offending God with our sin our whole lives long. It's not bad if God's word offends us a little bit in our sin, is it? It's kind of the whole point of God's word, to transform our lives. Now, this church might be leaving the word um, by Christians who compose that church, not spending time in God's word the other six days of the week, or Christians refusing to bring their lives into alignment with the word of God. I mean, the pastors and teachers, they might be faithfully communicating the word of God, but there's this refusal on, on the part of the listener, on the part of the receiver. And if that happens, that's a church leaving the word. Or I wonder if the Christians in the church at Sardis left the word by leaving the gospel. Uh, we know that was a struggle for churches in nearby Galatia. That's really the whole point uh, of God having to write the epistle to the Galatians uh, through Paul. Um, they left the word by leaving the gospel of salvation through God's grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And you know, the devil loves to get that poisonous heresy into churches that our, that our works that they play any role as, as a cause or as a reason for us being saved instead of being the effect, being the result of you and I being saved. If you leave the word in that manner, I promise you, you'll have a congregation full of impotent, uh, immature, stagnant Christians who will be asleep in their legalism and driving that church towards death, leaving the word. Now, let me offer a second cause. Church, this will cause churches to fall asleep and drift towards death. I believe the Christians here in Sardis left the watching. I know in the King James Version, that's what Jesus tells them to correct the problem. He says, be watchful. <laughs> Wake up, be watchful, be alert. In, in verse 2, in verse 3, if you don't watch, this is going to happen. They left the watching. And so if we reverse engineer this thing, we can deduce that they weren't being watchful. They weren't even watching, let alone being watchful. They had left the watch. And I remember hearing Dr. Jeremiah express concern, this was like probably a decade ago, um, that even in, in churches today, that's, that's happening. Uh, and it's a reason that so many churches are, are asleep or dying or maybe already dead. In an alarming way, there has been this marked change in Christians who know about prophecy, who know what God says in his word in places like Revelation. I remember uh, in the middle part of the last century, that sounds so long ago, I'm just talking about like 1950 to like the 90s or even 2000, uh, pastors in churches like ours, they actually preached about this kind of stuff. And now it's rare that pastors ever go past the book of Revelation chapter 3. Years ago, they had prophecy conferences all over the place, kind of like revivals, but with a specific um, you know, purpose to teach about prophecy, to understand what God has said in his word is ahead for us. Those are rare uh, anymore. And a, a Christian cannot be watchful. They can't be awake. They can't be ready for Christ's return if you don't know anything about it. And so there's pastors and there's teachers in the church who have left the watching, and because they've done that, they've caused their people to do that as well. 
I, I, I rarely do this, but I do want to go to 2 Peter. Will you flip over there? We'll be right back here. I just want to read a couple of verses. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 12. And, and I, I felt led of, of the Lord to, to take a look at these verses. Um, just because, I mean, I, I've heard people say this. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, God says this through Peter, knowing this, we're supposed to know this, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. They'll be walking after their own lust. What, what will that look like? What will they be scoffing about? They'll say this, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. They've been thinking Jesus is going to come back for 2,000 years now. And here we are. I mean, I've heard Christians say that in regard to, like, it really doesn't matter that much to study Revelation. Do you understand that 25%, one quarter of the Bible is prophecy? Or the Revelation? Or the prophetic passages in the Old Testament, like our men went through, going through uh, the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel? 25%. So you're saying 25% of God's word is not important or relevant to you? No, it's incredibly relevant. That's an attitude where you're going to be leaving the watching. It's a sad thing that there are Christians who don't know about what God has said in, in this book. And I, and I think it's because they say things like verse 4 there. Verse 8 says, But beloved, don't be ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That's why he's delayed. You want to know why he's delayed? The Lord's not slack. He's, he's not going back on his promise, as some men count slackness. He hasn't come back yet because Jesus is long-suffering toward us. Because of his great love and his great grace and his great mercy. And he does not want any believer to perish. He wants them to turn to Jesus Christ to be saved. And then look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And then it describes what will happen. I mean, everything we have here is going to be gone. Everything, this building will not be standing. What it's described there in verse 10. And so verse 11, seeing then, this is how prophecy should change your life. Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons, what kind of people, what kind of Christians ought you to be living here and now? And all your holy conversation, meaning your lifestyle, and how you live your life in godliness, you ought to be looking for, it says right there, looking for and hasten until the coming day of God. Let's go back to Revelation 3. That's what we're supposed to do. I mean, that's just such a perfect description of Christians, even way back there in the first century that God has Peter talk about. They already left the watchfulness. And of course, it's been even worse in the last 2,000 years. They left the watchfulness. They don't think it's relevant, not important. I know more than God about what's important in your word. You know, Sardis was an interesting city. The people there were extremely wealthy. And um, they lived a life of ease. They had everything they needed, including the types of sin that come from laziness and a life of ease. And the church is supposed to be in the world, but not of it. But sometimes the world gets in the church. Two different times, the city of Sardis was invaded, and they shouldn't have been. There was, like, they were almost an impregnable city militarily. They had one way in and one way out. And the only reason that they were invaded two times is nobody was watching. <laughs> they didn't even set one soldier to guard the place. And you would have thought after the first time they would never do that again. No, they did it again. Did it again. That's why Jesus is telling these Christians who understood that from a cultural perspective, we were invaded twice because we didn't watch. You know, he's telling them, be watchful uh, for my coming. And uh, a life of ease and a life of wealth for a Christian 
it can really, it can anesthetize us to watching for Christ's return. We've got it pretty good here. God's very gracious and he's blessed us in this country material, materially, financially. But that can be dangerous. A life of ease and wealth, it can make us focus on the material. Focus on the here and now more than the eternal, than then and there. Uh, and that can grab a hold of our heart and it can anchor it to this world instead of where it's supposed to be. And Christ's return in the world to come. And um, I, I think we've got a lot of Christians in our world today who aren't watchful and they're not too awful concerned about heaven and I'm not that surprised because why would they be? They've got heaven. They might have driven here this morning in their heaven. They might have woken up this morning in their heaven. Jesus says, be watchful. I've said it before, Christian. Jesus has no problem with you having things. He gives them to us. But he most certainly takes issue with things having us. And when we love this temporary world more than the eternal one to come, we've left the watching. And that's Christ's command. Be watchful. Verses 5 and 6. Be full of watching. Watchful. Fully awake to reality. And Jesus commands the faithful remnant of Christians here in this church that's mostly asleep. Church is mostly dead. He says, strengthen those precious little things that remain. <laughs> because they're ready to die too. He says, you have works, but they're not perfect. They're not complete. They're not finished. And I'm afraid too many Christians aren't watching for Christ's return at all, let alone being watchful. Christ's command to the church to correct this condition. He says, remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. And that phrase there is definitely one that leads me to believe that one of the things that we're struggling with was leaving God's word by leaving the gospel. That's almost a direct quote from Galatians chapter 3, where that church had left the gospel. It says, remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. How had they received and heard of salvation? By God's grace through faith. Remember, Jesus says, remember that. Remember the basics. Remember the foundation of your faith in Christ. Hold fast to it. And that's what God, as the Apostle Paul, told the church at Colossae in Colossians 2.6. Just as you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord, so walk in him. How do you receive Christ as Savior? By grace through faith. How are you supposed to continue on, live your life as a Christian until he calls you home or until he returns for us? By grace through faith. Don't leave that. Hold fast to it. And of course, like Christ's command to the previous churches in chapter 2 so far, Jesus tells them to repent. <laughs> And that's a summary command for everything he's already said. If they obey everything Jesus has commanded them to do here, to be watchful, to guard against leaving his word, to guard against leaving watchfulness, they will be repenting. They'll be having a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change in their lifestyle. Now, as we close this morning, we need to consider what Jesus promises them for obeying his command to change. Because there's always a promise. We sang that when it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. We said, you are our prize, not one of our prizes. He said, you are our prize. There's a reward for obeying Jesus, for following what he says. So Jesus promises here to the overcomer, to the one who confesses and says, you know what? Yeah, that is my condition. Uh, I'm, I'm prone to sleep in this culture. And so now I'm turning to Jesus as my Savior. I'm obeying Christ's command. Jesus says, they will be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What's the promise? What's the reward? Eternal life. That's what he's saying right there. That's the reward in the language in verse 5. A name written down in the book of life permanently. 
a name confessed by Jesus as belonging to him. That's what Jesus is going to tell God the Father, tell the angels in heaven when you get up there. And when you come up, he's going to say, him, he's mine forever. Her, she belongs to me forever. That's the best reward possible. Amen? Can't think of anything greater than that. Now, I do want to talk about this blot out thing. Um, and I'll agree with most theologians of our persuasion that the emphasis here is on the Christian's name not being blotted out. Right? That's what it says. Your name won't be blotted out. That's the focus. The only problem is, a lot of times, people of our theological persuasion, um, they, they want to disregard the reality that when Jesus says, I will not blot out, that there's obviously some inference that a name could be blotted out. Otherwise, why even bring that up? Jesus would just say, your name will be written down forever. He didn't have to say not blotted out. Uh, as a parent, you ought never threaten your child with anything that you're incapable of fulfilling. That's impossible. I mean, it makes no uh, sense. It loses all power and purpose otherwise. And so there's some people, we have to address this, because there's people who claim to be Christians who say, well, right here, here is a verse that makes it clear that your name can be blotted out, that you can lose your salvation. Well, I agree with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest Baptist preachers of all time. If we could lose our salvation, we would. All of us, all of us, we would. We cannot. We cannot. This verse teaches no such thing. It speaks of a book of life. That's a concept Scripture talks about all over the place, way back in the Old Testament, all the way here through Revelation. Um, David talks about it in the Psalms. Moses, one of the first to use that term. Uh, he was advocating for the Israelites. They he had come down from the mountain. They had that, made that stupid golden calf. They were worshiping it, and God was about to destroy them all. And Moses says, no, Lord, don't do that, please. Don't, don't destroy them. If you're going to blot their name, blot mine out instead. Take me for them. And um, we were going to study this book of life thing later in Revelation, uh, at the, especially at the end. It's referred to there as the Lamb's book of life. So whenever I would come across verses like this one here that spoke of blotting out here in Psalms and Exodus. I mean, I want to understand what God meant here because he so clearly tells us through the rest of his word that when we're saved, we're saved forever, that, that there's no losing your salvation like some of the free will Baptists or other Christian denominations incorrectly teach. So, so I studied this book of life thing years ago. I went through every passage, and here's what I found. God's word repeatedly speaks of a book of life. I, I believe it's a book that has the name of every single person written it who has ever been alive. That makes sense, wouldn't it? The book of life records every person who's ever been alive. And God's word also talks about names being blotted out. Here's one instance, Psalms, Exodus, or at least the possibility. And so um, to take all of Scripture, to make it congruent, where it's not contradicting each other, I believe that all those who are living, whose names are in this book because they were alive, if during their life they do not receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, your name's blotted out. Your name's blotted out. But if you do, if you turn to Christ, if you receive him as, as Savior, if you trust in him, your name is written in this book. And let me tell you, it is written in what we sang about this morning. It is written in the unerasable ink of the blood of Jesus Christ. It will be there forever. There is no, no blotting out of that name. Later in Revelation, it talks about a final judgment the great white throne judgment. It's not for us, for those who've rejected Christ, for all those who have ever lived, whose names are not found in that book. 
They were blotted out because they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. We're told in Revelation 20, 12, and 13 that those who don't know Jesus as Savior, whose names are not in the book of life, they'll be judged by their works. And those works are recorded in other books. It talks about their books that recorded their rejection of Jesus and every sin that they committed. But if you know Jesus the Savior, if you can look to a point in your life when you heard about who he is and what he did for you, and if you told God in prayer, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I believe that Savior is is Jesus, and I want him to be the Lord of my life, your name is written in that book of life, and it's going to be there forever. Blotting out is not a possibility. For you, there will be a day when you're clothed in white raiment, like it says here, with the rest of the Christians in heaven, a wardrobe that communicates a purity and holiness and victory especially victory, because our victory is in Jesus, if we are overcomers. God has John tell us in 1 John 5, 4, this is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Our faith in Jesus. That's what saves us. That's how we have eternal life. If we'll have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to us this morning. The Spirit says, come to Jesus, if you've never received him as Savior. Do that this morning, if you never have. Right now, ask the Lord in prayer, forgive my sins, ask him to save you. Even as I'm talking, be born again today, Christian. The Spirit says to you this morning, have you left the word? Have you left your dependence on the word of God? That that very thing that brought you to faith in Jesus, as it says in 1 Peter, this is how you were born again, by the word of God, it's imperishable. Are you now trying to live for the Lord without it? Have you left the daily time spent in God's word? The Spirit says, I missed my time with you, Christian. The Spirit says, have you left the watchfulness? Has busyness of life schedules? We're all busy. Has that distracted you from the reality that any moment Jesus could return for those who are his? Are you watchful? Full? Are you expectant? Are you, are you longing for that day? Are you living for eternity? Or have the things in this world, have they begun to have you? Have they grabbed your gaze away from the eternal things in Christ? If so, tell the Lord you want that to change this morning. I say, tell God, I want that to change this year. Should, should he tarry his return? I want to come to the end of 2024, and that, that was the year I was the most watchful. <laughs> I'm not consumed by distractions or entertainment or social media, the cares of this world, the pulls of this world. I wasn't distracted by the temporal. Man, you want to talk about some Christians who live in watchfulness? They have a way of being used by God to point those who are distracted to Jesus and to his kingdom. Those are those rare Jesus followers who make the greatest impact here and now for the then and there. That's the testimony I want. What, what about you? Tommy, Corinne, will you come and lead?